Hello, friends. Derek Sweatman here, pastor of Atlanta Christian Church in beautiful downtown Atlanta. Thanks for joining us on this week's podcast for the third Sunday of Easter 2017. Our teacher this week was Kyle Marshall, former youth pastor with us and now a campus pastor at Emory University. He did a great job. It was awesome. Enjoy it. Grace and peace. When the darkness closes in, when the shadows start to fall around me, oh, your morning will begin. Good morning. Welcome. You brave the uh, cloudy weather to be here. Went out there. There we go. Some of my friends here, uh, they tried to do a, a sunrise hike this morning um, at Stone Mountain, and I don't think they saw the sun at all, but you know. We're glad you're here. Uh, as Derek said, my name is Kyle. I used to be the youth pastor here, and now I'm a campus minister at Emory University at uh, Bread Coffee House. And so a few weeks ago, I told Derek, I was like, I, you've been up like every week for a while. That's got to be exhausting. I was like, I, I'll get up there if you want a break. He was like, yes. So, um, so I'm excited to be here. Uh, how, just curious, how many people in the room have traveled abroad more than like for a couple weeks to live in a country that is not your home country? Hand, show of hands. All right. Now, some of you, yeah, I was going to say, some of you, maybe the country that you're in now isn't your, isn't your home. So uh, if you've traveled ever before in that way, more than a week or two, you've probably experienced something that uh, researchers call culture shock. Anybody ever experienced culture shock? Yes. Uh, culture shock is that thing when you go to a culture that is not like your home culture, and you have that moment like, oh my gosh, I'm not in Kansas anymore. Um, if you're from the South and you've left the South, you probably experienced culture shock just by going anywhere. I went to Seattle last year, and, uh, and I was in Seattle for a week, and every morning I was going into this classroom building where there were other people coming in and out, and I would smile and wave, good morning, good morning, and not a single person responded. And I was like, this, man, this is not my home. Something's wrong here. People aren't friendly here. Um, and so, uh, yeah, when I, I, I lived in England, a lot of y'all know this, I've said this a bunch of times on stage, but I lived in England many years ago, and um, when we got ready to go, they trained us, like, just so you know, you're going to experience culture shock. Like, it's going to, there's things, something's going to happen, and it's going to hit you, and you're going to be like, oh my gosh, I'm not at home. And I was 22 and arrogant, and I'm like, I'll be fine. Like, I was like, they speak English. It's pretty much the same place. Like, I know they drive on the wrong side of the road, and they say aluminum instead of aluminum, but other than that, that's pretty much, uh, it's pretty much home. And so I get on a plane, and I go to England, and for a while, things were okay. And then one day, I was at the grocery store, and I was looking for my ramen noodles, because I was still really a college student at heart, and I couldn't find the ramen noodles, and I, you know, I began looking for Lucky Charms. Fun fact, they don't have Lucky Charms in England. Um, and I was like, what is going on? We're right next to Ireland. How do we not have Lucky Charms? Like, it has to be right here. And it hit me like, oh my gosh, I'm thousands of miles away from home. And, uh, but I'll never forget the day that I walked six miles to get a Big Mac. Um, now, I don't really like McDonald's that much. It's, you know, in my mind, it's sort of one of the lower on the, uh, the, the food chain of fast food restaurants. My father-in-law saw I was holding a McDonald's cup. Sorry. Um, <laughs> But I, I, when I was in England and I, I, I was missing home and I had a particularly rough week and all I wanted was something that tasted like fat American home. I needed that. And so we didn't have a car and uh, we were like, let's go to McDonald's. And we didn't feel like it would be okay to spend more on the taxi ride to McDonald's than the actual hamburger would cost. And so we're like, we got to walk. 
And we're like, we're probably going to need to burn all of this off. Um, and so we start walking. We had no idea how far it was. We we're like, I think it's down this street. And, um, and so we start walking. And six miles later, we see the golden arches. And like, it was a spiritual experience when I saw that. <laughs> I was like crying, you know. <laughs> and so uh, I go in and I have the hamburger. And it was the best hamburger I've ever eaten because it tasted. Something weird about McDonald's is like, no matter where you go, it still tastes the same, which that can't be good. Like, like even like even beer, if you get it in another country, tastes different. But somehow this hamburger, like it stays the same wherever they they taste it and or they, where they send it. And so um, I, I had the hamburger and it was great and it reminded me of home. And uh, it was it was that was a big moment in my life. You know, this this hamburger from McDonald's. Uh, and I share that story because our text this morning deals with a group of people who are living in their home. Um, in their home cities, uh, but suddenly they feel like exiles and feel like foreigners in their hometown. And, uh, and Peter is writing this letter to address this issue. Like, what do you do when the, the place that you call home no longer feels like home anymore because of your faith in Jesus? What do you do when things sort of uh, don't feel like they used to? How do you respond to that? And so he writes this letter to a group of Christians living in uh, lots of cities. If you need to know the background on that, Derek did a pretty good job of explaining all that last week. Download the app. You should get it. Um, and it's on there. But uh, so we won't go into too many details. But essentially what Peter is saying is to this group of Christians, hey, uh, I know it doesn't feel like home anymore. I know that the culture around you has shifted um, because of your new faith in Jesus. Uh, but hold on. And last week, Derek talked about hope and how to these Christians, he encourages them to have hope. Uh, that in the face of uh, adversity, in the face of great struggle, uh, these Christians were encouraged to have hope. And so today we're going to take another step forward. If you have your Bibles uh, or a phone with an app, it's um, in First Peter chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 17. I'm going to read this, and then we're going to pray, and then we're going to get into our text. He says, If you call on him as Father, who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you are ransomed from the future ways inherited from your fathers, not with the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. For he was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Since you have been born again, not a perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Let's pray. God, as we dive into your word this morning, uh, and Lord, we, we search for truth, search for meaning in our own lives. Lord, I pray that you would make yourself known. Lord, that you would reveal to us ways that, uh, that we are, as uh, the audience here for this letter, uh, living in a place that maybe doesn't always feel like home. And God, and you've given us a new way to live. And so I pray that this morning our, your word encourages us uh, to see things uh, in, in a new light, Lord, and encourages us to love. So in your name we pray. Amen. All right, let's begin by looking. We looked at this word last week, but we're going we're gonna to come back to it. This word exile. Say exile with me. Exile. Exile is a powerful word. Uh, we don't necessarily uh, do exile anymore in the sense of like we don't send people to like a place where they're exiled. I think Georgia used to be an exile state where you would just get like exiled here. That's how we started, which is awesome, of course. Um, 
But uh, exile is a, is a very prominent theme throughout the scriptures. And when Peter uses this, the word he uses in the Greek actually means a person to li- living in a strange land. Um, and the word here is actually used earlier in Acts to describe uh, Israelites living in slavery in Egypt. Uh, and so the, although the Israelites were living in uh, what was their geographical home at the time, many of them were born and had been raised in this home, that wasn't their home, and they knew it. E- Egypt wasn't their home. It wasn't their identity. It wasn't who they were. Um, and so they longed for home, for the promised land. And Peter uses this imagery to describe what these Christians are going through uh, in their hometowns, that, yes, they've grown up there. This is their home. But something had happened when they discovered the love uh, of Jesus, when their eyes had been opened to the resurrection of Jesus, that had changed their perspective, and suddenly they were still surrounded by their friends and family and home, but things were different, and they felt like exiles, like foreigners, like immigrants in their own hometowns. Now, as I read this, I thought, I think we often feel this too. Have you ever felt like one of Peter's readers here? Like something happened uh, when you, if you were a Christian, something happened when you discovered Jesus, the love and the, and the grace of Jesus that transformed the way you see the world. But yet you had to go back to, to the people and the places that maybe didn't see things the same way. I've worked summer camp for many years with Derek. And one of the things we always deal with is high schoolers come to summer camp, and it's an amazing week where they experience God, and they, they have their lives transformed, but then they have to go back to their schools. And man, high school, not always the most Jesus-centered place, right? We all were there. It's, uh, it's hard. And so I think we all often feel the same way, that maybe, uh, maybe we have a friend group that knows our past, that, is, that has been with us through the rough moments in our life. And then we discover Jesus, and we have our lives transformed, but we still have those same old friends. What do we do with that? How do we interact in that world? Or maybe it's a family uh, where your, your family still functions in this one way, and the sad thing is you don't get to choose your family, right? Your family is your family. And I think that's good and bad. But, um, uh, you know, you inherit this family, but then maybe your perspective changes that through Jesus you discover that there is new life and hope and grace, but then you still have to go back. You still have your old family, right? What do you do in that? Sometimes you may feel like an exile. Or maybe it's coworkers. Man, I, I know that. Like coworkers, not everybody works with a bunch of like Jesus-centered coworkers, right? And so uh, maybe you, you, you have your faith and your love in Jesus, but you got to go to work every day. And you're just surrounded by people that don't see things the way that you do. And so how do you function in that world? I think what Peter is saying here is that we all have in some way inherited a sort of frame of reference that either is continually being pushed on us from our outsiders, or maybe we've just inherited it from our past. Um, And that as we found living hope in Jesus, that that frame of reference is no longer acceptable. It's not that those things are bad or evil. It's just that once you've seen and tasted something, you can't untaste that. You can't unsee that. How many here wear contacts or glasses? Yeah, a lot of us. You still remember the first time you put those glasses or contacts on? like the, the amazing, like what it, what it felt like to see for the first time. Like you had no idea. I, I remember I was in fifth grade. I had no idea I couldn't see. Like I was like, yeah, it's the shapes on the board. I'm sure it's, you know, I don't know what that is, but it's fine. And then I put on glasses. And I was like, oh, those are words. Like, <laughs> you know. And once I had glasses on, I was like, I can't function anymore. Like nothing had really changed except for the fact that I'd seen. And if I took those glasses off, I was like, I'm blind now. I can't make, and now like I cannot function. I had one day where I had a contact come out, come out while I was driving. And I was like, I guess this is where I live now because I can't go anywhere. Um, 
once, once you've seen and tasted, you can't unsee. And for Peter, what he's saying here is that the, the living hope that we found in Jesus has, has transformed the way we see, has given us new ways of seeing, and yet we still have to function in this world full of people that maybe don't see the way that we do. So what do you do there? Well, Peter writes is that the cross of Jesus has redeemed us from the old way of life. There's another word I want to look at. It's called liberation. Say it with me. Liberation. Sit on the screen. Yes. Um, playing on the same idea of slavery, Peter uses this word to describe what happens to his old, uh, to his listeners, to his readers, and to us uh, when they discover the hope that they have in Jesus. You're set free. You're liberated. You're given a new way of seeing. And in the ancient Roman world, when you interacted with the divine, your interaction was based on fear and appeasement. You went to the temples and you sacrificed to the gods in hope that the gods would bless you. And when bad things happened, it was probably your fault. Maybe you didn't give enough. You didn't sacrifice enough. And everything you did, every, everything, the way that you worked in the world, and particularly with the divine, was based on fear and appeasement. And in this amazing way, Peter takes a shot here. He says, you've been liberated from all of that. Um, and he says, uh, this old ways, look at verse, uh, I think it's 18. He goes, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers. He goes on to talk about that ransom being from Jesus. He takes a shot at that old religious system. What he's essentially saying here is, your parents taught you one thing, but you know that's just the load. You know it's not true. And, the, and that the cross of Jesus has freed you from that. Um, pages stuck together. Now, we don't live in that same world. How many of you guys have ever gone to a temple and made a sacrifice? Anybody? No, I haven't. <laughs> but we have inherited a way, a framework of seeing God that impacts the way we interact. Uh, we live in a world that has dominant messages. And whether or not we realize it, whether or not we pay attention to it, we are shaped by those things. And often the way we see God is shaped by those things. Is anybody in advertising in here? Anybody in advertising? So I, I'm fascinated by advertising. I love television, like it's a problem. I watch way too much TV. Um, and the problem with television is that there's ads. And, you know, I used to like zone out when ads would come on. I'm like, oh, I just want to watch the next part of the TV show. But every now and then I'll, I'll watch and I'll pay attention. Like, what is this thing saying? Like, there's always the dominant message, like, buy this thing. But a good ad has like another message that you don't pay attention to, right? That you don't, you don't see unless you think about it. I have a few uh, ads I want to throw on the screen to do this. Like, here's the first one here. It's a Nike ad, Find Your Greatness. Pretty clear, first ad, right? Uh, first, first theme, is if you wear these Nike shoes, you'll be great. But what's the, what's the other message behind, beneath the surface here? Anybody? You're not great if you don't have the shoes? What's the guy in the, in the background? Is he a uh, super fit, fit, like good-looking dude? No, he's uh, an out-of-shape guy. What they're saying here is that if you're out of shape, you're not great, <laughs> and that you need these shoes to be great, right? Kind of a kind of sad when you think about it. Next ad, another one, another Nike. Nike man, they do a lot of advertising. Uh, the ultimate quick fix: um, the shoe works if you do. Yeah. So what this is saying is that if you buy these shoes, it'll fix all your problems. But the subtle message is that you have problems. There's something wrong, right? That you need these shoes uh, in order to function. It's another ad. This one's just weird. Like. <laughs> No hamburgers ever looked like that, right? <laughs> Big beefy bliss. There's something weird about this one. I don't know. It just feels like 
dirty. I don't know what it is. There's something <laughs> gross about this. But it's, it's essentially saying if you buy this hamburger, it will create happiness in your life, which we all know is a lie, and yet it still works somehow. Uh, one more. I think two more, actually. Oh, this is one more. This is a not real ad. I just thought it was funny. Ikea, we, we throw in extra parts just to mess with you. So clearly, we live in a world that have, has a message that is at play uh, that impacts the way that we live. Um, and I would dare say in our world, in this sort of like 21st century uh, capitalistic, consumeristic society, the dominant message that we hear most often is a message of guilt and shame. That we are told, you don't have enough, you aren't good enough, and you ought to feel bad about that. And that message is used to get us to buy lots of stuff. How many of y'all saw that there's a spring Black Friday coming this year? What? We already have one. We, and that, that one's awful, but apparently we need two now. And so that's, that's the dominant message, that you need things, that you, you aren't good enough, that you aren't um, happy enough. And that if you eat this hamburger, you'll find bliss. <laughs> Um, and I think that that message has infiltrated the way we view God as well. Like, how often has our interaction with the divine been shaped by guilt and shame? How often are we told that we're not good enough, that we have to do something, that we have to work harder in order to earn God's favor? We need to go to church more. We need to pray harder, all these things. Um, I saw this ad. This is, this is a thing. that It's around town. I've seen a bunch of these, right? Um, like, we have our own billboards. That's just weird. And, and again, guilt and shame, it's your choice, but you don't choose the right one, eternity in hell. You know, like, that's, that's sort of the world we live in. I'm take that off screen, because that's just creepy. Um, <laughs> so to us, and much like to Peter's first century readers, uh, we inherit this frame of reference of seeing the divine that we need to be liberated from. We need to be told that in the cross of Jesus, we have been freed from that. That the cross of Jesus says, God, you don't have to function like this. You don't have to live in this guilt and shame. You don't have to think that God is angry with you or upset with you. That the cross of Jesus proves God's love for you. That there's nothing else that must be done. That the resurrection of Jesus has done it all. And now we're just called to be people of love. And here's our last word. It's a beautiful word, four-letter word. Let's all say it. Love. I, ha I downloaded this song, All You Need Is Love, by the Beatles. Anybody know that song? I downloaded it many years ago for a baby dedication service here, and it's still the first song on my phone. And so when you plug it in in my car, it starts playing that song every single time. And now I hate that song. But <laughs> uh, if we are exiles, if we are people living in a culture that, is, it's, that the dominant message is not in tune with our dominant message, that we have been given freedom in Christ, and yet we live in a culture that constantly tells us that we ought to feel guilt and shame or we're not good enough. Then the, the way around that, the way through that was what Peter says is to love, and to love earnestly. We love because God first loved us. We love because love is the only thing that can transform our families, can transform our friends, can transform our coworkers, our neighborhoods, and our world. We, we love because God is love, and when we participate in love, we literally participate and a divine act. And so to bring all this home, uh, what does it mean to be a community of love? Uh, well, there's a million different answers to that. And one of the fun things about this season over the next six weeks, five weeks left of Easter, is that we are challenged to continue to think about what are like creative ways that we can make love a priority in our, in our life and in our church. Um, so there's a million answers there, but I had a couple ideas that I just wanted to throw out here. And the first idea is this idea of hospitality and service. The fact that the last thing Jesus did in the book of John before he went to the cross 
Does anybody know? Wash, this, wash the disciples' feet, that's right. That the last thing Jesus did before he left was to serve his disciples. And that fact, I think, sets the precedent for what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That if you were to be a follower of Jesus, service and hospitality have to be key. I work at a campus ministry at Emory, and, uh, you know, campus ministry is one of those vague things, because it's like, one of our students was like, is this a church? You know, like, is this a coffee house? Because we have a co- we give a lot of coffee away. Uh, he didn't really know. And, uh, but one of our key tenets of our ministry is that we are a ministry of hospitality. And, uh, and when you walk in the, the room, the front room, which you should, because there's free coffee, and if you're ever in, uh, at Emory, or just come by, you can get free coffee. Um, but you walk in our house, there's a, a thing on the wall that has sort, of, has sort of a mission statement for us. And one of the things I love that sort of sticks with me is that uh, we say, when talk is cheap, hospitality is our sermon. And we mean that. And so when students come in, we work really hard to say, no matter who you are, what you think, what you look like, all those things, we want you to feel welcomed and loved here. And so we give away free coffee uh, when students walk in and we hang out with them. We gave, away, gave out 8,000 cookies last year on campus, which was like, that's a lot of cookies. And a lot of y'all helped bake those cookies, so thank you. Um, but we do that because we want students to know that they're loved. And we think if, if, if someone experiences uh, the welcome uh, message of hospitality first, that they're much more willing to sit and listen and engage with you about other matters of life. So how do we put that practice in our own lives, into our personal lives and our lives of our church how many of y'all were here for the neighboring series we did like six years ago? A few of us, yeah. Um, that series has stuck with me, and, I, and as I was working on this, it sort of popped back into my brain that I think one of the ways that we can practice hospitality on an individual level is just by getting to know our neighbors. Like we all have neighbors, I imagine, right? Um, I grew up in Heard County, and we still had neighbors, and even though there was like 7,000 people total in like, you know, a 20-mile square route, we still had neighbors. And so... Uh, here in the city, we all are surrounded by people, and how, many, how often do we not know our neighbors' names, right? That's sort of a, that's a hard challenge. Do we know our neighbors' names? What if we just invited a neighbor over for dinner because they are created in the image of God and deserve to be that, to be loved? Not because we need to witness to them and hand them a tract, but just to, just to love them. I think that's one way that we can put that into practice. Or what if we just threw a block party one day and invited everybody, all your neighbors over, or in your building, all the people on your floor, um, what if we as a church continue to engage in creative ways of loving our neighbors? There's a lot of people that live within a mile square block of here. How are ways that our church uh, can love our neighbors? These are important questions that we need to wrestle with this Easter season. And as we wrestle with this idea of putting love into practice, I think that those are important questions. One more step. I couldn't walk out without giving a couple practical steps. Uh, and I think this one is really key because everybody can do it no matter how much time you have. Uh, but it's to commit ourselves to encouragement and gratitude. How often do we say thank you? How often do we encourage one another? In a world of John Olivers and Samantha Bees and uh, Trevor Noah's, like I love those guys, their guys are amazing, but in that world of just sarcasm and critique and ridicule, that, that can become our language where we're just sarcastic and angry and criticizing everything. But if we are people that have a living hope, and we are a people shaped by love, then our language needs to change. What if our language became dominated by encouragement and gratitude? How powerful a message might that send the culture around us uh, if we said, because of the love that God has shown us, uh, we're committing ourselves to being people of, of gratitude. Abraham Heschel, the Jewish rabbi, I, I love, he's just a fantastic person. 
Uh, you should read anything he's ever written. He wrote this. He says, get up in the morning and look at the world in a way that takes nothing for granted. Everything is phenomenal. Everything is incredible. Never treat life casually. To be spiritual is to be amazed. I think gratitude starts by just having awareness of what is going on. The ancient mystics talked about prayer in this light. The prayer was often about paying attention to what was going on. Just creating a space in your life where you can notice the good things that God is doing. There's a guy named Brother Lawrence who was an um, ancient monk. I don't know how long ago it was. It was a while. Um, older than our country. And uh, he uh, was known that for being a person that people would travel miles and miles and miles to watch him peel potatoes because they saw something in his act of peeling potatoes that was spiritual because he was engaged and he was thankful for the potato in front of him. How often do we pay attention to that? One of my struggles as a person is like, I remember going to college and I like stopped saying the blessing before my meal because I was like, I'm too cool for that. Like, God, God loves me. I don't need to like pray uh, before my meal. And then as I've gotten older, I'm like, that's kind of stupid, man. Like, can't I just say thank you for, a, for the meal that I have in front of me? How many people don't have a meal in front of you? You know, so one of my challenges for myself is like, how I got to start thanking God for the meal I have in front of me. Uh, research shows that the happiest people tend to be the most grateful. If you're needing more joy in your life, the research shows that gratitude, making that a practice, can actually shape the way you think. One of my friends who's in this room, so I'm not going to say their name, uh, for Lent one year, decided to uh, write letters to people and emails to people thanking them every day for 40 days as a practice. Like, how amazing is that? I got one of those, and it was like, oh, that's so nice. Um, what if we did that? What if we made gratitude a practice? What would it look like for us uh, if we, like, organized meals together where we just sat together and shared uh, how God has blessed us and what God is doing in our lives and are thankful for that? Thanksgiving doesn't have to have the priority on that. We can do it more than once a year, right? Uh, what if, uh, uh, what better time to remember God's provision than when we were surrounded by friends and food? Um, gratitude is also connected to a Sabbath rest. Uh, Christine Pohl, in her amazing book, Living Into Community, said it this way. She says, gratitude and wonder are squeezed out when our lives are packed full with busyness and responsibility. There's simply no room, no time to notice. We experience God's gift when we pause long enough to notice them. So maybe for us, it just means taking time, creating space uh, to stop and say thank you and to notice what God is doing. Uh, but we are reminded this Easter season to be people not only committed to hope, but to love. And as we navigate this world that is so often filled with messages that are not in line with the message that we receive in Jesus, of, of, of grace and love and mercy, all those messages, uh, are, we, we, we work in that world um, through love. We navigate that world through love. So may we be a, a church community that makes hope and love a priority in our own lives. May we commit to being people uh, who are committed to showing the world outside that they are welcome through our hospitality and service. And may we forever be known as a people who are grateful for the plentiful uh, bounty that we have received in Christ our Lord. Amen.